Okay, so we're going to continue on in finishing off chapter 12 and then hopefully 13 as well and complete 2 Corinthians. Uh, for that, let's pray. God, you are Lord of all. You owe all glory to you. Jesus, thank you so, so much for the cross. And look at myself and I see that I'm unworthy for what you did. But it is true, all of us are unworthy. But you, because of what you did, give us worth in you. So, Father, we need your help. We're coming before you as your children going, Daddy, we need you to help us to love you more, to listen to your spirit, to hear your word and allow it to change us from the inside, that we may love you more and allow your spirit to work through us, in us, changing us, blessing others, showing your love and giving you every single bit of the glory you deserve. You deserve the glory. And so tonight, Father, Father, we pray that whatever is spoken, that it all be done to glorify you. Have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to finish off with 2 Corinthians, starting with chapter 12, verse 10. And just take the last part of verse 10, and that's the last sentence by Paul where he says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. So there's going to be some things we're going to be talking about some verses, and I've shared with you some verses are, you know, we tend to lift up some verses over others. But this is going to be one of the two big verses. Well, there's actually three, really that I want you to really get a hold of. We talked about this last week, about my grace is sufficient, my strength, okay, is made perfect in weakness. So Paul now surrenders to that. So we know what the Lord says, there's still a choice within us whether we want to surrender. When I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I'm strong, then I'm strong, but when I'm weak, what does he mean? Obviously, he's meaning when he's weak within himself. When he recognizes his neediness. That nothing good can happen apart from God. That's the hard part. We keep thinking there's some good within us. That we can affect good things for the kingdom of God in our own strength. And scripture says again and again, that's not true. Only through the Holy Spirit can the kingdom be brought forth. Only through the power of God. And so we have to be weak we have to be lowly. We have to be receptive for the power of God, for the Spirit to work through us. Okay, so that's the big, big, big take-home point. And look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can do some things. Now, I can do all things. What all things are you talking about? It's not like I'm going to win the Olympics to Christ replace me. That's not what it's about. It's not about the things that I want. That's the thing. When he says I can do all things, he's talking about all spiritual things that God wants of me. That's the whole different scale we have to look at. 
we, we, we twist Scripture sometimes for our own purposes. The whole point that Paul's talking about is we have to get a kingdom mindset, an eternal mindset. And when we get that, everything that we read in the Word is always in view of the kingdom. That's not what's always preached outside there. It's often preached or taught in a way for yourself, for the world. If you're hearing somebody talking about using the Scripture for the world, for yourself, then he's probably not representing the Scripture properly. I really want you to get a sense of that. I'm not saying the guidelines of the Bible aren't useful in the disciplines of our life. Of course they are. What I'm saying is the principal purpose of the Word of God is to bring forth the kingdom, to give Him the glory, okay? To change us, right? To sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, okay? That we may be better vessels so that His Holy Spirit can flow through, okay? And as I've shared, actually, that we may actually have not only rewards, we'll get rewards in heaven, but what's the biggest reward in heaven we'll have? To be there with Jesus, okay? And the more that we're like Him, the more joy we'll have. The more that we're like Jesus, the more joy you'll have. Okay? So, Uh, we talked about last week a little bit about the thorn in the flesh. And I shared with you that thorn is not like a little rose thorn, but it's kind of like a tent peg or stake, okay? It's a lot bigger than you think. And we may have big thorns that afflict us, each of us differently. But I'm going to read something from Alan Redpath. Of course, the greatest example of the principle Paul communicates here was lived by Jesus himself. Could anyone on earth be more meek than the Son of God to be hung on the cross, hung in our place that he might redeem us from our sins? At the point of absolute weakness, okay, at that point of absolute weakness was met by the mighty power of God as he raised him from the dead. I wonder if the pressure of the thorn in Paul's life was a reminder of the power of the cross. I invite you, I invite all of us to remember the cross. And each moment of each day, I'm getting some hum. So at each moment, um, I invite you to remember the cross. Dave Guzik who I get a lot from, so credit to Dave Guzik, um, a Calvary pastor. He says, we really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we are insufficient. Until we believe we are insufficient. We can't receive the sufficiency of God's grace until we know our own insufficiency. So Paul knows it, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 13, he says, I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent or the super apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is in it which you were inferior to other churches, except 
that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me for this wrong. And Paul is speaking, frankly, a little sarcastically. Okay, he's telling them he hasn't been a burden. And we're going to go in and talk a little bit more of what he's done for the Corinthian church. And the idea is that he's saying, I've done, I have not asked a lot of you. And I've just poured out and given to you. I don't. He talked again about those super apostles, those Judaic apostles who could speak so eloquently that he was not like that. I'm nothing. I'm nothing like that. And so the idea that Paul is trying to communicate is we can be presumptuous. Those of us who are critically minded, who's critically minded? I'm critically minded. We all are. We evaluate and we judge. We look at other people and we make ideas of this is what it should be or that's what it should be. And it's so easy for us seeing only a perspective, thinking what we think in our mind what it should be. And Paul's basically saying, you really don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay? I've just nothing given you. You, 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 you. you rail against me. You have these expectations of me that aren't really true because you see something else that you admire in the world. And he's trying to reset their idea. And I think the Lord's doing the same. And so Paul's going further in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. Now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, and though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did, he, did we not walk in the same steps? So he's emphasizing again. They accuse him of being crafty. That's what these super apostles said. Oh, he's just being crafty. He's manipulating you. And we need discernment. The church at Corinth, who Paul invested in, did not have that discernment. They were easily swayed by flowery speech. They had people who tickled their ears. We need discernment that we're not that influenced that easily succumb to those things on the superficial and not seeing the substance. You're hearing Paul's grief, his grief at the church that he just gave. He didn't ask anything. He didn't come for, I said, I'm not doing this for my benefit. I get nothing out of this. I'm doing it for you. You're accusing me of manipulating. That's not true. Cunning. Doing that. Look at this. Look, I sent this guy. He's basically saying the same thing that I'm saying. Is there any inconsistency there? Are we not sharing the same message? We have to do the same thing. And so that's the invitation you have. Hear from the pulpit here within the body. Are you hearing a consistent same message? Are you hearing the message that points you towards Jesus Christ, that points you towards the gospel, that talks about the surrendered life? That's what Paul is communicating to them. So let's 
finish off that uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, 19 to 21. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanliness, fornication, and lewdness which they practiced. Pretty strong stuff. And we're going to go in this, this last part. So in this, the last two chapters and chapters, actually last, since chapter 10 on, Paul is coming down hard on the Corinthian church. He's seeing that they're very worldly, that they're choosing to chase things of the world. And what Pastor shared, what Glenn and Justin, most of the churches that I've seen choose the world and Jesus. Can I have the world and can I have Jesus at the same time? Can I do the things and pursue things of the world, hedge my bets, keep heaven there? You know, I got my, you know, I got Jesus, so I got my get-out-of-jail-free card, but still pursue things of the world do the things I want. And the problem is this spirit of the world is becoming much more oppressive and consuming. It's affecting every bit of our lives. And the number one device that it goes through is what? Our smartphones. Yeah. It used to be TV. Now it's our smartphones. It's everywhere. We take it everywhere. As everything. We're hooked to it. I am. Some of it's good. A lot of it can be a distraction. But no question, it allows the world to come in. And especially for the young generation, these 8, 9, 10-year-olds who have the phone with them all the time, they don't know how to exist without it. They don't know how to communicate without it. They don't know how to live their lives without it. And that's what's happening in the world. Their social connections, their identity. I'm reading stuff uh, talking about, you know, Web 2.0, and we're now moving to Web 3.0, which is with AI and the interaction. So basically completely disconnecting us from human interaction so our interaction is completely digitally, okay? The digital focus and an interactive digital focus where it caters to you because the AI understands how you think certainly better than any other human can think, but definitely not as well as God can think, okay? This is becoming, the key to be aware of, it's becoming much more pervasive and seductive. It's affecting everything. On your web homepages, everything that you search, it's all about the world. And that world is causing all these spirits that he's talking about here, right? Backbiting, selfish ambitions, outbursts of wrath. I know outbursts of wrath. I've had that. I see some of the things that I'm frustrated. And because when I read the news, I become angry by it. I don't like what's happening. And so I want to smash something. That's what I'm feeling. I was like, look at me. What, look at me. God, what am I doing? I don't have mercy like you do. I'm not like you. I want to smash. That's what my flesh wants. That's what that spirit stirs within me. So my challenge is not to be like, oh, look at this. This is crazy. This is nuts. And some of the sites that I like that are supposedly good just incites that spirit. And even the good sites aren't as good as you think because they're motivated by the flesh, not the spirit. Any site that's motivated by the flesh is going to be, by definition, not good. 
even if it's for a good cause. So I want you to be very cautious about that. And you'll hear that from other people because that's what they're in the world. And so they think they're not in the world because they're against what the major agenda is. I'm not with the major agenda of the media, so I'm not with the world. No, you can be in the world on the other side. Both sides, both parties, if you're in a political thing, all of it's all the world. It's all going to the climax. It's all coming to the end of where things are to the end time. Everything on, on all that side is being engineered and everything that way. And if you understand that and you know the times and we're getting a sense of you'll see, you won't know the hour, okay, but we'll know the season. Things are all coming to an end and it's going to become harder and harder. Harder and harder to follow Jesus. Harder and harder to be completely sold out to Christ. Harder and harder to not make compromises. Now, if you want that job, you want to do that, you're going to need it. Like I needed, I needed the, now I with the new job, I don't need my phone that much. I realized I need my phone as much as I need the other job. I'm like, hmm, that's a good thing. The Lord God protected me, helped me, when I didn't even think about it. That's how good of a God we have. But I want you to be aware of that for ourselves. We have to set some limits to ourselves. So Paul's talking about that spirit, and so he's saying, I don't wish to find you. So the challenge for us is, you know, we each have private sins. The most private is in our thought life, what we're thinking. It'd be terrible if everybody got to know every single thought that I had. Okay? Okay? It would be terrible to know all the thoughts I have. But that's not a good thing. What's what God wants to redeem? Okay? Everything before I came in the last few years, it was like fixing the outside of the cup fixing the outside of the tomb, whitewashing it. And basically what he wants to do is deal with the inside, the heart. And Jesus wants to redeem the inside, the thought life. And so everything that he's talking about, those actions are fruit of that thought life. And that's what's before us. We need to look and passionately seek God to help transform our thought life. We need to be much more, if we're thinking and it goes down a path, we need to like, if, you know, those of us who knew what vinyl records were, you had to like, it, we need to get out of that and get back into, you know, into the song of the Lord. Okay? And that's, and so Paul's, and so he's seeing the fruit of that, and we may look and go, well, we're not doing that here at this church. We're not that worldly. Look around the other churches. They're more worldly than us, so we're doing okay. His message doesn't apply to us. That's not true. It applies to where our hearts are. We know where our hearts are. We know where our thought life is. And Paul's still addressing us. So we're moving on to chapter 13 at the beginning in the first four verses. Paul says, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. And though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. So, I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 18 of Acts and read verses 1 to 11 with me. 
As I mentioned, Paul started this church. He says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked by, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Shabbat and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he bartered from there and entered a house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. And he, that's Paul, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So we talked about, Paul was there for a year and a half. This is where we get that from Acts. Claudius was the emperor of Rome at that time, around 40 to 50, Anno Domini. And so he said, got all the Jews out of, out of Rome, and that's where they went to Corinth, the southern part of Greece. And so Paul was there. He vested a year and a half. He helped minister the ruler of the synagogue, and they came to Christ. So they started this whole church. Maybe the ruler of the synagogue brought other Jews came, and that's where you get all these other super apostles. But you realize he is personally invested in this church. It's one of the longest times he spent as a church. He moved around from place to place. And he talks here about the Macedonian. Remember I mentioned in the earlier chapters, you get the sense the Macedonian church was the one who basically helped him. He worked as a tent maker, but he was also financially supported from these poor Macedonians who didn't have very much. Okay, and he said, this is two or three witnesses. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15, and it's the Mosaic law that says that, you know, if somebody complains about somebody, just because they say so, don't count it unless there's two or three witnesses to confirm that. And he's saying, there's two or three witnesses, maybe we're not sure, is he referring to Titus and this other brother as two or three witnesses, or is he talking about the two previous times he's come and this will be the third time as another witness, another scene, I don't know. But he's saying, I care about you, and I'm going to tell you something very strong. And I want us to understand, Pastor Jeff, you know, Evangelist Glenn, they share some strong messages here. We hear strong messages stronger than most churches do. And they're doing it because they love us. They're doing it out of the Spirit of God to tell us things that are strong. And guess what? Just like I shared last week, it's not going to get easier. If you think being a Christian means life is going to get easier for you, that's not what it's about. The whole ministry of Jesus when he was on the earth, it wasn't easier. It was getting harder and harder and harder. And even with Paul, in many respects, harder and harder and harder. 
People that invest in, they don't follow through, just like what's happening with the Corinthian church. And you have to go back and you have to, that's just, that's the nature of human beings. We're going to have that. We're going to have frustrations. You're going to invest in somebody, you're going to care, and you're going to love on them, and then they're going to falter. They're going to choose things of the world. And you're going to go, did I waste my time? Did they not see that I cared about them? Did they not see that I loved them? Did they not see the love of Christ in what we shared and also in me? Why did they choose the world? So some of it is there's a grieving. It's a pain. And so when you hear, and I get to hear some of the stories, it hurts. And the hard part is not to harden your heart from that. How do you be generous, get burned, and then still be generous again? By the grace of God. By the grace of God. No other way. Okay? Only because God gave it. So when I remember what Jesus did for me on the cross, remember I said, remember the cross. What he did on the cross for me, that's what gives me the strength to give again. And we're going to make mistakes. We're going to screw up. I had that challenge early this morning. You know, when I worked, somebody came in early this morning and pretty dramatic, and it was a challenge for me, and I was tired. had an hour of sleep, and I was tired. I'd slept till noon yesterday before I went in last night, but it was a hard sleep, so I was tired, and when I'm tired, and I'm frustrated, and they come in, and there was a lot of drama, it's hard for me. I have to pray. I prayed earlier. Why didn't I pray then? I didn't pray then. Sometimes they go, oh, I prayed earlier. That should cover me. No, it doesn't always cover you. Don't assume that. Pray in the moment. And I wasn't mean. I wasn't bad. But I wasn't loving. I didn't show the love of Christ to this woman who needed it. I could tell she was upset. And then at the very end, at the interchange, I said, I'm sorry. First time I talked to God, God, I need help. I kind of get a sense, now you ask. Oh, better late than never, almost late. But God's there. And, he gets, and so I was able to make it less bad. It wasn't terrible but less bad. It wasn't good when it could have been good. Okay? She felt judged, and I didn't mean to make her feel judged. So the point was is we need to be sensitive to the Spirit at all times, and we need to keep mind of that, especially when we don't want to, especially when we're irritated and frustrated, especially when we're tired. That's going to be the challenge, and that's where we have to get stronger in our faith and our walk. Okay, when you're coming from church and you're coming from the service and you're all enthusiastic and we're arm in arm together, it's easy to profess things of God. When you're by yourself and you're tired and you're frustrated and you want to go home and go to bed, which is what I wanted, it's not so easy when somebody goes, oh, by the way, hey, can I have your time? And you want to say, oh, not really. I'm too tired. Sorry. You're out of luck. That's what Jesus did, right? No. No. Now, there is times at the end of the day he'd spend time with the Lord. He did seek rest. But we have to realize, is that rest for selfish reasons or the rest to be with the Lord? That's the challenge we have. That's the thing that Paul is admonishing them and the challenge before us. So, Harris says, it seems that in their immaturity, the Corinthians were unimpressed by Christ-like gentleness and meekness, but were overawed by arbitrary 
displays of power. And what Paul's telling them, and one of the things we're going to have to be, we're going to be talking more. So this will be the end of Corinthians. We're going to go on to First and Second Thessalonians, and then on to Peter. We need to get prepared. We've seen a God who's loving, and God is amazingly loving, and we'll always communicate that here at this church. But we're also going to give you another message about the righteousness of God. When Christ comes back, and he will come back, when he comes back, he'll still be loving, but you're going to get much more of the righteousness. Okay? God has forestalled his wrath. He's been long-suffering and patient. We don't know when that's going to happen exactly, but he's going to come back to hold account. And so Paul is telling them, okay, the idea of that when he comes back, he's going to have that same spirit. He's not Christ, but he's going to have that same spirit to tell them to admonish them. And the reason is a just God is going to have to hold account. That's what he has to do. That's part of his nature, part of who he is. Not, not that he's not mercy. There's still that mercy to choose Christ. But a just God holds account of what's wrong, to hold account balances. And he has to give account. And if you have the blood of Christ, just like the Hebrews in Israel, if they had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, they, that, that spirit will pass over. But if they don't, they'll come under wrath. So James Denny, a Scottish theologian, says, the cross does not exhaust Christ's relation to sin. He passed from the cross to the throne, and when he comes again, it is as a judge. It is the sin of sins to presume upon the cross. When Christ again, comes again, he will not spare. The two things go together in him, the infinite patience of the cross, the inexorable righteousness of the throne. And so the apostle, in the same spirit, reminds them of the fact that the Lord Jesus is still living. He has, and it's true, died for sin, but he's gone to the right hand of the throne of God, and he is coming again. Christ is coming again. Christ is coming again. There's really no doubt about it. Some may not want to believe it. They don't want to, because they don't want to deal with the consequences or for other reasons. The point is, Scripture is very clear there's going to be an account. And God's calling us to be ready for that. And this whole world is sinking. It's going to go in fire, but it's, the analogy of it's still sinking. And what we can do is just rescue people. So we're going to see people, and the chance we have in, is to have the heart of Christ is to rescue those who are putting their hands out. And you can tell the Spirit's going to do that. He goes, hey, they're putting their hand out. And sometimes, you know, you may literally have to connect hands together like monkeys in a barrel, okay, and then get all pulled out together. So 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 to 10. This is the second part of the verse that I want you to do. Remember. Remember that I mentioned that earlier about the first part, right? For when I'm weak, that I'm strong. Well, this second one is examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we, cannot do, we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And for we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this is also, we pray, that you might be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. So examine yourself in the faith. Redpath says we are often very ready to examine and test others. But first, and always first, we must examine and test ourselves. That was the trouble at Corinth. They criticized Paul, but failed to examine themselves. So this scripture has been used by many in different ways. Some say examine yourself. You know, it's this whole thing of Reformed versus Armenian and all that stuff. Um, whether or not, you know, whether you're actually in the faith or not in the faith to do that. I, I, I really don't want us to get caught up in that. Okay? I don't want you to use this as a doctrinal issue on either side. Okay? Because it loses the main thrust. This verse applies to every one of us. Doesn't matter what your theology is. Examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. How do you know you're in the faith? Test yourself. How do you test yourself? Okay? Pardon me? According to the Word. So you're testing yourself. Do you spend time with Jesus? Are you spending time in His Word? Are you getting together in a fellowship? Are you following what they're telling you to do and acts to do it? Are you sharing the good news? Are you talking about how God is? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to change and transform you? It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Though Paul says to be complete, that means we're working towards that. That's what he's talking about. So we are called each day to examine ourselves. Do I love you, Jesus? Am I thinking about you? Now, in honesty, you're here on a Wednesday night together, worshiping together. This is something you may, I may be saying preaching to the choir. But the value in this statement is it's an opportunity to go, hey, God, what do you want me to do? Not just mornings. Like for me, I should have examined myself at 5 o'clock in the morning when I was tired. I wasn't thinking of the faith. Examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Another word is in the spirit too, whether Jesus Christ is your modus operandi, your MO. Does he drive you? Is he your engine? Is he your power? Is he the reason that you're doing things? And that's what he's talking about. And for this we pray that you may be made complete. And we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, Redpath says, again, to examine yourself, in fact, is to submit to the examination and scrutiny of Jesus Christ the Lord. And this never to fix attention on sin. Listen to this. Never fix attention on sin, but on Christ. I'm not saying ignore sin. I'm saying repent of sin, focus on Jesus. 
Repent of sin quickly. Focus on Jesus. Okay? But to ask him to reveal that in you which grieves his spirit. To ask him to give you grace that it might put away and that it might be put away and cleansed in his precious blood. Self-examination takes the chill away from your soul. It takes the hardness away from your heart. It takes the shadows away from your life. It sets the prisoner free. It sets the prisoner free. So Spurgeon says, now prove yourself. Don't merely sit in your closet and look at yourselves alone, but go out in this busy world and see what kind of piety you have. Remember, many a man's religion will stand examination that will not stand proof. We may sit at home and look at our religion and say, well, I think this will do. It's not how well we do on a test. I can give you a theological test and you may pass and give all the right answers. But act like the devil outside. Because you don't really believe it. It's not how you operate. It's like the Pharisees were a bunch of hypocrites. So the examine ourselves is going to be in the test. It's going to be in life and how we deal with people. It's going to be those times when we're tired and frustrated. I love here what Spurgeon says. Now, what is it to have Jesus Christ in you? The true Christian carries the cross in his heart. And a cross inside the heart, my friend, is one of the sweetest cures for the cross on the back. Did you hear that? The cross on the heart is one of the sweetest cures for the cross on the back. If you have a cross in your heart, Christ crucified in you, the hope of glory, all the crosses of this world's troubles will seem to you light enough and you will easily be able to sustain it. Christ in the heart means Christ believed in, Christ beloved, Christ trusted, Christ espoused, Christ communed with, Christ as our daily food and ourselves as the temple and palace wherein Jesus Christ daily walks. What if that's what we were like. So when we say examine ourselves, that's the level to examine. Are we like that? Is Christ motivating all things that we do? There's a poem I read that I like, and I said, this, oh, I want to share this. Um, it's over 100 years old, but I'm not even sure who the author is. Let not soft slumber close your eyes. Before you've collected thrice the train of action through the day. Where have my feet chose out their way? What have I learned? Where'er I've been, from all I've heard, from all I've seen. What have I more that's worth the knowing? What have I done that's worth doing? the doing? What have I sought that I should shun? What duty have I left undone? Unto what new follies run? These self-inquiries are the road that lead to virtue and to God. 
So let's uh, finish off with the last part, verses 11 to 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So the third verse I want you to remember is that last part. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You know, some people have complained and that, you know, the Trinity is not explicitly stated in the Bible. It's right there. It's right there, Stephen. You got it. It's right there. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, God who's just, the Father God who will come in with strength also, it's His love, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. If we remember that as a motto, and then it says at the beginning, it starts that line with, be complete. Be restored in some translation. Be resolved. Be complete. Be whole. He mentioned that in the previous verses in 13.9. Be complete. God is the author and our perfecter of our faith. We're not alone in this. We have the communion of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit within us to help us, to guide us, to strengthen us. We understand that God loves us and we know by the power of the grace that we don't do it in our own strength but by God's grace. So when we say again about what we're willing to what we're willing to do, what we're willing to surrender, what we're willing to believe. And I want to close with an example from evangelist George Whitefield. So evangelist George Whitefield longed to die preaching, and he almost did. In 1770, on a final tour through the American colonies, he ignored the pleas of doctors and friends to rest. When too tired to preach, he lifted his voice all the more. When asthmatic colds caused breathing cramps, he ignored them. He claimed that a good pulpit sweat was beneficial. But the vomiting, diarrhea, and shivering increased as the autumn arrived. On Saturday, September 29, 1770, Whitefield rode to Exeter, North uh, New Hampshire, where someone seeing his appearance told him he was more fit to go to bed than to preach. It's true, Whitefield replied. Then he burst into prayer, Lord, I am weary in thy work, but not of it. If I have yet not yet finished my course, let me speak for thee once more and come home and die. A crowd assembled and Whitefield stood precariously atop a barrel. He quoted 2 Corinthians 13:5, test yourselves and find out if you really are true to your faith, then began to preach. He rose up sluggishly and wearily, reported an eyewitness, as if exhausted by his labors. His face seemed bloated his voice hoarse, his enunciation heavy. 
But then his mind kindled and his lion-like voice roared to the extremities of his audience. There's no amp here. He's all speaking on his own. He told the crowd he would rather climb to the moon by a rope of sand than try to achieve heaven by works. Whitefield kept his audience spellbound for two hours. Then he cried, I go. I have outlived many on earth, but they cannot outlive me in heaven. My body fails. My spirit expands. Finishing his sermon, he was helped from the barrel to his horse, and he continued to Newburyport, which is a town. That evening, a group of friends gathered and asked Whitefield to speak to them. He begged off, citing asthma. But then he rose, took a lighted candle, started up the steps. Turning, he delivered a brief moving message. When the candle died out, he continued up the stairs, went to his bed where he died during the night. Paul's going to, and we're going to talk more about finishing well. Whitefield finished well. He was completely sold out to the very end. Weary in his own strength. I wasn't that way. I was weary in my own strength. I didn't see God. He did. He sought the Lord, guided by God, and gave, and he at the end still gave something at the end. He was tired. He wanted to go back, weak. Death's door died that night and still shared with people. He had the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ knowing the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. May we do likewise. Amen.